0: This New America NYC event was recorded on October 22, 2015, and is titled, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning, and features Marian Nestle, author of Soda Politics, and Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, and Leah Douglas, reporter and analyst at the Open Markets Program at New America.
1: book about sodas when I have in my office a shelf about this big of nothing but books about the soda industry. Um, The book was suggested by my agent um, who had a client in California who was a Hollywood producer and he wanted to do an electronic version of a book that would promote public health and they thought that sodas would be a really good idea for doing this project Um, And the minute they suggested it, I knew it was just a terrific idea because even though there are all these books about the soda industry, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, uh, the war between Coke and Pepsi, the war that is being fought in Latin America and Indonesia over uh, people in bottling plants who are trying to unionize, I mean, there are books about all of these things, but nobody was really talking about the advocacy projects that are going on in the United States right now were all over the country for the last several years. There have been project after project after project trying to get people to drink less soda. And what was really amazing about that, of course, is that people are drinking less soda. So we have here a place in which advocacy is actually doing some good. And I teach a course in food advocacy at NYU, and I I'm always trying to keep students from being cynical and depressed about our political situation. And here's something that's winning. I thought it was a great topic. And in public health terms, sodas are low hanging fruit, meaning that they're a really easy target. They're sugars, they're water, they're nothing else. They're not good for you, at least in anything more than the tiniest quantities. And so it seemed to me to be a really good idea. Let's write a book about it. And I didn't quite think it would be a book quite this size, but that's the way I write. What can I do? It's very comprehensive, um, and it's got lots of pictures, so that makes it easier. It's not as bad as it looks. Um, And so there was plenty to write about. There was no lack of things to write about, starting with going through that library of books to
0: read. Mm -hmm. And so what do you see as the particular threat that Soda Um, it takes up to our public health, to our public policy. Why this particular, um, you know, of all the sort of big, bad, big food issues?
1: Well, it's an analogy with cigarettes, I think. Um, You know, the cigarette industry has been written about and worked on, and it's really much simpler. But the soda industry in many ways behaves the same way that the cigarette industry did when it was trying to... um, cover up or or deflect attention from the role of cigarettes in health for so many years. And the soda industry is doing the same thing. Um, they are doing everything they possibly can to, st- to stop health advocates from trying to stop people from drinking soda. And they're doing that in many of the same ways that the cigarette industry did. So first you confuse the science, then you attack the scientists, then you... Um, deflect attention by focusing on exercise or hydration or whatever. Um, And then you fund all of these organizations, as was revealed by that astonishing article in the New York Times in August that talked about how Coca-Cola funds an organization devoted to um, having an organization, a front group, that talks about how you don't have to worry about what you eat or drink it's um, all about physical activity. And so it was that kind of thing. There was plenty to write about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew that there would be uh, an extraordinary number of topics to write about, not only what's in soda and what sodas do to health, but also how they're marketed, not just the direct advertising that everybody sees, but but also um, not only the direct advertising, but also the way they fund minority and health organizations, the way they market overseas, the way they fund research and um, people who are working in health advocacy, uh, and many, many examples of Coca-Cola in particular, or the American Beverage Association funding Just coming into a city that is trying to consider a soda tax and giving the city a very large and strategically placed gift. And suddenly the soda tax disappears. Uh, And that's happened over and over and over again, most recently in San Antonio. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So if you've been following that.
0: Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, you talk a lot in the book about how uh, big soda funds a lot of, uh, nutrition research, you know, mm-hmm. that advocates in, in many sort of, like, coded ways um, in favor of or sort of falls neutral on the subject of soda consumption. How is it possible to sort of bend the research that much? Is it just Are you lying? Are
1: It's easy to design studies <laughs> to give you the answer you want. It's really easy. I mean, I was trained in molecular biology. I am not know how to do these things. Um, it's not that hard. You just set up the experiment Um, in a way that's not as carefully controlled, not as rigorously designed, perhaps. You conduct it perfectly so that it stands up to peer review. It goes through all the peer-reviewed processes. And I think it's not a coincidence at all that most industry-funded research comes out with results favorable to the industry. I mean, otherwise, why would they do it? There'd be no reason to. Mm -hmm. Um, And Coca-Cola has strategically... Uh, funded studies to demonstrate that sodas have no effect on obesity, type 2 diabetes, childhood obesity, and that the data that do show correlations are so flawed that you don't have to pay any attention to them. I mean, there's just been study after study after study funded by Coca-Cola or the American Beverage Association. PepsiCo is very quiet in all of this, and it lets... Uh, the trade association or Coca-Cola do the dirty work. I mean, just very quiet. So uh, It's not that hard to do. And the, um, I mean, it was interesting. I met a couple of weeks ago with the head of Coca-Cola North America, who's, as a result of the New York Times article about the Global Energy Balance Network, uh, has been on a, going on a listening tour and going around, going around and talking to people who... Um, you know, have criticized what coca is doing, and really, really nice guy and totally straightforward as far as I could tell, and I say this without any irony, he really was, uh, and he, he says that he thought they were just funding state-of-the-art research. It never occurred to him that this would be viewed as a strategic, Uh, effort to try to fund researchers who think that all you need to do to control obesity is change your diet by 50 calories a day. If only. That would be wonderful. But people who are gaining weight are gaining weight because they're overeating by hundreds of calories a day. And that's not something that he was familiar with. I came away from that interview thinking that this company is totally schizophrenic. And that on the one hand you have the public face of people who are just couldn't be nicer, or more thoughtful, or more interested in public health, really want to do the right thing. And then there's, that's Dr. Jekyll. And then behind the scenes, there's Mr. Hyde, who's making every one of these decisions very strategically, so that it looks like it's a very systematic effort to deflect attention from the harm that's caused by drinking a lot of sugar. Really not a good idea. and, and buying silence. And the buying the silence part about it is the most interesting part. I mean, we saw that in New York when Bloomberg had his ill-fated attempt to try to set a 16-ounce cap on soda sizes. Um, the um, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Hispanic Federation filed an amicus curiae brief in support of the soda industry, not the city. Did that have anything to do with the fact that the soda industry has been funding those organizations for years? Well, it looks that way. I mean, I also think, and I discuss in the book, that it's much more complicated than that. And certainly the head of the New York State the NAACP said nobody ever came and talked to him about it. You know, the soda industry did, but the mayor's people didn't. And so, you know, if they had talked about it, maybe it would have come out differently. But that was the problem with that. Initiative was they never talked to anybody. Uh, that, and the fact that 16 ounces was probably too high for a cap. But that's that's just my opinion.
0: Yeah, and you, and you talk in the book about how uh, you know the soda industry will uh, even publicly advocate for policies that it's secretly lobbying against. So, you know, in instance, I maybe in bottle recycling, there are some like, oh, yeah. you know issues where yeah, that there's that was a, go- two just a gorgeous
1: example. Um, where the soda industry funds many, 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 many programs uh, that clean up waste, bottle waste. Um, Really, lots of them. Recycling programs all over the world. They're funding recycling programs, but behind the scenes, they're doing everything they can to fight bottle deposit laws and fighting the efforts of the Grand Canyon to stop bottled water from being... Um, sold or used in the Grand Canyon and a third of the waste in the national parks is bottles from sodas and bottled water and of course soda companies own bottled water companies. Um, So there's sort of these two things going on at once, but you only see the public face of it because they fund all these community organizations that are doing all these great things and the community organizations tend not to criticize the soda industry. As a result, what a surprise!
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the 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 almost neurosis around. There's no issue so small, you know. A bottle deposit law, you know. The, the notion that even a five cent increase on a on the price of soda could threaten the industry so much that they would spend millions of dollars. Millions lobbying of
1: dollars, so or you know, or these tax initiatives. The soda industry is very worried about the tax initiatives, um, and. That's because the tax initiatives, there are only two of them, one in Berkeley and one in Mexico, but they seem to be working. And soda sales are down. And so you can understand why they would be fighting these things. And so what they're doing instead is the soda industry has moved into Mexico en masse and has gotten the government to uh, vote to have the tax, cut the tax in half. Um, and it looks like that's what they're going to do. Mm
0: -hmm. So So, um, I'm interested in the issue of consolidation, in particular in the soda industry. At the Open Markets Program at New America, we specifically look at consolidation in different industries. And so the soda industry sort of has these big three. It's Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper Snapple, which is sort of, lagging behind, but those are the three big companies. It's
1: really Big One. But right, it's right, right, really Big One
0: would have been named Big Three. So how do you see consolidation as playing a role in the growing power of big soda in politics and public health? How is that particular phenomenon affected?
1: Well, there's a book that talks about the soda wars and says that the soda wars are good for both Coke and Pepsi. Nobody talks about Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper's sample is very quiet. It has a It has a significant, but much, much, much smaller share of the market. I ignored it throughout the book. It didn't seem like you needed to pay much attention to it and really hardly mentioned it. Um, Coke and Pepsi are the big ones, and it's really Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola is totally dependent on beverage sales, whereas PepsiCo has Frito-Lay and snacks and all these other things, um, even oatmeal. So the, um, it's a much more diverse and complicated company in a lot of ways. So it's really Coca-Cola as the face of the industry. Both of the companies have funded behind the scenes, front groups and uh, organizations that are doing lobbying for legislation that, ALEC, that whatever, that legislative organization that writes, a very right wing that writes legislation. Um, And they both, both Coke and Pepsi, funded that organization until they were exposed and then they dropped it. In the same way that Coca-Cola is dropping its sponsorship of the Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics, the Academy of Pediatrics, and the Academy of Family Medicine, Coca-Cola is pulling out of those. um, Because once the New York Times exposed all that, uh, there was... uh, it's just too embarrassing and an unstrategic. They don't want to be criticized for that. So they're complete, you know, as a result of that New York Times article, the uh, Coca-Cola said that it would be completely transparent about who it funded. And it was. It posted the names of all of the organizations and all of the individuals on its website and lots of people have been having a lot of fun with that list let me tell you so there's one analysis of it that breaks it up into how many health organizations how many minority organizations how many physical activity organizations how many environmental organizations and that kind of thing you can really see where the money is being spent Um, And so they're now rethinking that whole business. And what's so interesting about that is that the organizations that Coke has pulled out of are all claiming credit, saying we weren't going to renew it anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's very hard to know which one did it first. I can't tell.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in in hearing more of your thoughts on the relationship between um, these community organizations, nonprofits, small groups representing marginalized communities, and this funding from Big Soda and also Big Food in general, Mm -hmm. um, do you think there's any appropriate relationship between those two uh, sectors, or is there...
1: You're asking me that? No, I don't think any of it is appropriate.
0: Well, Um, I guess I ask because, you know, I would imagine that these organizations need funding from somewhere, right? So it's a broader question about, you know, public-private...
1: Yeah, they need funding from somewhere, but... And I suppose it depends on what the organization is, but these organizations are being used as part of um, the soda industry's marketing. And if if you're a small organization and you're desperate for funds and you're not getting Coca-Cola money from Coca-Cola or or the American Beverage Association, there's something wrong with your fundraising effort because they fund everybody. You ought to take a look at this list. It's just amazing. See, you go on the Coca-Cola website and look for transparency search for transparency. It's an astonishing list. I mean, the way I, I was, the first time I looked at it, I was going page after page after page after page, and I was getting really tired of it, and I was only up to the D's, <laughs> and the rest of the alphabet to go. I mean, every, it's the comprehensive nature of it that's so amazing. I went with a couple of reporters a, a couple of weeks ago to Co- the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, I had never been there, and they wanted me to come down and go through it with them, which was an astonishing experience. And I'm very sorry I didn't do it earlier, because I certainly would have written about it in the book. You pay, you pay $16 to go in, or if you're old like me, you only pay $14, and you, um, you go in, and the first thing that happens is you watch this video of Coca-Cola, great moments in happiness in people's lives. And uh, yeah, you come in and you're really very ironic and cynical. And you sit there and watch this thing. And there isn't a single person in the room who doesn't have tears trickling down face, including me and including these really tough reporters because it's so touching. It's so absolutely touching. I mean, the most touching one that you just, you just gasped, it was so, it really got to you, was you're in a baseball stadium and there's a family there and they have a son who's in Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, on one of those big video screens that they have at stadiums, the sun appears, and you see his picture, and the family is crying, and the family is just, and, and it's, hi, mom, and whatever, and, it's, and then all of a sudden, he walks out, and he's there. And I tell you, you can't watch this without crying. I couldn't. And so there you are, deeply moved, And then you get to go and watch more commercials and go through and look at the history of Coca-Cola marketing, the history of Coca-Cola bottling. Um, Then you go upstairs and you get to taste uh, all of the products that are, a lot of the products that are made all over the world. And that was really enlightening, too, because I tasted about 50 of them and Coca-Cola tastes better than all of them. That's a problem for this company. If they want to produce differently flavored or lower sugar sodas, they're going to have a problem with that. And then you enter through the gift shop, which is roughly five times the size of this space. Um, And there's a lineup of cashiers that looks like something out of Whole Foods, um, where you're online and there are lights that tell you when a cashier is ready and people are going out with shopping carts. And, the, um, and big baskets of things. And I have to say, I was very, very tempted by sheets with the Andy Warhol Coca-Cola on them. I really wanted them. They were $65. And I just kept looking, and I looked, and they were polyester. I don't know, <laughs> can't do it, can't do it. Um, But I did buy $40 worth of photographs because, you know, they took photographs. They take photographs of everybody who's there. And you can't not take the photograph, right? (laughs) (laughs) So that's the Dr. Jekyll face of Coca-Cola. And while we were there, it's a surreal experience. While we were there, about 100 Tibetan monks came through and walked through. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what you do with this. I, I can't get my head around it. This is all about marketing a sugary drink, that people would be much healthier if they drank less of. Not none, but less of, a lot less of.
0: So <laughs> Does that anywhere
1: come anywhere close
0: to... I can't remember what the question no, was that you asked. That was a, a very worthy anecdote. I appreciated that. <laughs> Um, so, changing tack a little bit, I'm interested in talking about the specific solutions that have been proposed um, to address soda consumption. So, the most um, prevalent, I guess, has been a tax of some sort. Um, here, we had the, the cap on soda size. There's been um, initiatives talking about um, warning labels, warning labels, um, taking it out of the SNAP program so that people who receive food stamps, and the Supplemental Nutrition Program, can't um, buy sodas. So one of the things that I've observed over the years is a number of those solutions um, tend to uh, weigh more heavily on folks who are low income and people of color. And I'm interested in... So there's diabetes and obesity. Sure. So I'm I'm interested in uh, what your take would be on, you know, how do we balance, you know, taking a a proactive approach to addressing obesity and diabetes while also trying to come up with um, public health solutions that don't, Way most heavily on marginalized communities.
1: Yeah, um, it would be nice if education worked. but if you're talking about a public health education campaign, you are matching that campaign to a expenditure on just Coca-Cola. I have to remember this number, just Coca-Cola of 269 million dollars last year. Um, I don't know any public health campaigns that have that kind of money. Um, And that, by the way, was nearly $60 million higher than had been spent in 2013. Um, So that additional money going into marketing was used to market the small drinks, um, which are sold for a higher price. So that's how Coca-Cola last year's, or the first two quarters this year, Coca-Cola's profits were doing pretty well. They attribute that to more money spent on marketing um, of the smaller drinks. The, this last quarter results that came in yesterday, I think, they're down 4 or 5%. And that they're blaming on the strong dollar. I, I wish somebody could explain monetary policy to I me. Mean, I really don't understand it very well. But they're blaming it on the strong dollar and on health advocacy. People aren't drinking as much sugary drinks. So um, each of these campaigns raises the education quotient and what they're seeing is much more education in the areas where these campaigns are going on and declines in consumption across the board they're finding that the tax is indeed being passed on yes that hits um, people who are poorer more but so does diabetes hit people who are poorer more um, so that's, a, you know, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult. The SNAP issue is the really tough one because the anti-hunger community is completely dug in on allowing SNAP dollars to be used for um, anything that anybody wants to buy, including soda consumption, and we don't know how much money is spent on sodas in the SNAP program. The standard figure is $4 billion a year. $4 billion? a year, but that's a very, very uncertain figure because the Department of Agriculture doesn't collect information on what uh, SNAP recipients spend their dollars on, which is another big political issue. But I was at the New York Times Food for Tomorrow conference um, this week, and there was a big discussion about that in one of the panels. And um, in general, that audience of people participating at that conference cannot understand why SNAP recipients are allowed to buy sodas with tax dollars. They just can't understand it. And it was there was nobody there representing the anti-hunger community in any really serious way to talk about the things that the anti-hunger community talks about, which is stigma, uh, regress, regressive you know, taxes and, and that sort of thing. So there's nobody there defending that position, um, but they can't understand it. And I thought that was very interesting. I mean, these were corporate people, even. Um, you had to pick a, um, a, a number out of a hat to assign you to a table at lunch, and I picked the table and sat next to the representative from PepsiCo. How did I do that?
0: (laughs) Was there any any interesting lunch conversations? That was a a
1: very interesting lunch conversation. She was quite sympathetic. I won't say who it was. (laughs)
0: Um, So so thinking also about um, other creative types of um, regulation of the soda industry. So in your book, you talk a little bit about um, we talk a lot about schools and, and, ha- and how there's been a number of different fights about soda prevalence in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and correct me if I'm remembering wrong, but um, sort of has boiled down to this point. There's a number of sort of voluntary regulations that companies can follow or schools can opt in or opt out of different programs that limit soda consumption in different or placement in different parts of the school or times of day. Oh, no, it's much better um, than that. Oh, okay. It's much Excuse better me. than that. <laughs> yeah, <the laughs> what health- could you explain?
1: <laughs> yeah, the healthy hunger. Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010 set nutrition standards for what could be sold in school, and full soda, full sugar sodas are out. Mm-hmm. But the story that I tell in the book that I think is much more telling is the, um, is the one about how advocates, health advocates, were trying to get vending machines out of schools. There didn't used to be vending machines in schools until about the late 1990s. And the, advocate and the vending machines came in and went with soda industry, what are called pouring rights contracts, which are contracts for exclusive sales of one brand or another of a soda in a school district. And the school gets money for scoreboards and things like that. And the soda industry gets to place vending machines in schools. That was the deal. Uh, and they don't make that much money for the schools, although it seems like they do, but nobody does the bookkeeping very carefully. When they do do the bookkeeping, it comes to about 20 to $30 per student per year, uh, which you would think you would be able to make up in some other way. But anyway, there they are. And when the pouring rights contracts, which started out at Rutgers, and then drifted to other colleges and then to high schools and then to junior high schools and then to grammar schools. And when they got into grammar schools, and it was clear that these contracts were causing the principals of the schools to push sodas on the kids because the more sodas the kids drank, the more money the school got. Um, Then there was a lot of advocacy around that and a big pushback. And by now, most grammar schools don't have Um, vending machines, well, they don't have full sugar sodas. They're not being sold in grammar schools very much anymore. But high schools, yes. Um, But advocates, this was a few years ago, were trying to get the vending machines, let's get the vending machines out and solve the problem. And they had just about achieved a deal with the American Beverage Association and Coke and Pepsi to get the vending machines out when the Clinton Foundation stepped in and brokered a deal with the soda industry to keep the vending machines in schools but exclude full-sugar sodas. Gatorade, yes. Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, no. And that's where we are today. That was accepted. The the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act set standards for schools that exclude Gatorade, and there shouldn't be Gatorade in schools anymore. There shouldn't be anything with sugar over whatever the cut point is. I can't remember what it is, but whatever it is, it shouldn't be there. Um, and the, the situation should be much better, at least at the grammar school and junior high school stage. Um, but that was interesting about the Clinton Foundation. Um, the Clinton Library, I think it is, has just is holding an exhibit of Coca-Cola bottling, and there's a big opening of it with the president of Coca-Cola, so they're very tied in. And Coca-Cola is a big contributor to the Clinton Foundation.
0: Now, that's a conflict of interest right there if
1: you're going to be doing health advocacy.
0: Um, so maybe looking at an optimistic lens, um, can you talk a little bit about the... the...
1: I am <laughs> optimistic. It's called end winning. Right,
0: right, of course, right. That's optimistic. So I want to talk about the winning, right. I want to talk yeah, about the winning. end winning. Maybe it's just my own. I've been asking a lot of unoptimistic <laughs> questions, so I'm correcting my, my own path. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the the Berkeley soda tax in that case? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, the Berkeley... I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is how to do advocacy. Because there's been a lot of advocacy. And I've already said that Bloomberg did everything wrong on the soda tax. I mean, really, just about everything. Um, And rule number one is you um, try to think very strategically about what it is you're going to do and who your allies are. And you get allies. Berkeley did everything right. Just by the book. First of all, they learned from the uh, two places in California, Richmond and El Monte, that had tried soda taxes two years earlier and been completely defeated by the soda industry putting millions of dollars into fighting those taxes, uh, those tax initiatives. And the taxes were defeated by a vote of 67%. um, so it was really a big, big route. And California has this funny thing where you cannot target. If you have a tax initiative and you want the money to be used for something, the only way that you can couple those two things is by having a two-thirds vote. You need a 67% vote. And so in Richmond and El, El Monte, they had split the vote and had two separate initiatives one for the tax, which lost by 67%, and one for where the tax money would go, which won by 67%. Um, but the whole thing failed because the tax initiative failed. So Berkeley learned from that. And they first of all, they, uh, they started with a framing device that was very, very different from what everybody else had done. Instead of framing the tax as a health initiative, They framed it as Berkeley versus Big Soda. So it was um, the people against big corporations. Everybody got that. And so when the soda industry came in with the funding of the front groups and plastering BART stations with advertisements against the tax and doing all of these really heavy-handed things, the organizers could say, here's Big Soda behaving just the way Big corporations always behave, and everybody could see it. It was totally visible. Um, And then the other thing that they did that I thought was completely crucial was they organized. They organized in every single neighborhood in Berkeley, not just the white, educated, rich people in the hills, but the poorest people who lived in the flats. There was not a single neighborhood that didn't go uncanvassed. And they talked to people about the issue of regressive taxes and regressive diseases. That was right on the agenda. They had very straightforward materials about it. They could talk about it. They won by a vote of 75%. Oh, and I forgot one other thing. Bloomberg Philanthropies funded them. Um, They had money from Bloomberg Philanthropies to run television ads. Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, they had money. It's it's not. It's interesting that both of the successful tax initiatives, the one in Berkeley and the one in Mexico, had Bloomberg Philanthropies money. Um, it, not so much in Berkeley. I don't remember what it was. Um, oh, in Bloomberg terms, a rounding error. But you know, I, a million. I don't know what. I don't know what it was in in um, what it was in Berkeley, but in uh, Mexico it was sixteen million dollars serious money I'm sorry I can't hear you is he for his life? Bloomberg I don't think so I don't think he is I don't think he is I, I've seen him recently at a book signing party and he didn't seem to have bodyguards <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that shouldn't I don't mean that as an invita- as an uh, invitation um, I understand there's a move to push him for president um, uh, So they did everything right. And the vote was spectacular. Um, And that should be an incentive to other places to try. And I think it is an incentive. So uh, we'll see more tax initiatives.
0: And you think that um, it's translatable from Berkeley? Because I know when there was first being talked about, there was a a sentiment of, oh, of course, Berkeley. Circularly, we used to call it when I went there.
1: I'm a Berkeley grad. Mm so, yeah, I don't think that that, I, I think it was much more than that. I think they did everything right. I mean, they just did advocacy the way Saul Linsky used to do advocacy. It was very well done. So,
0: yeah. um, we well, just one more question and then let us throw it to Q&A. Um, so, why, why is it do you, that you, do you think that uh, soda is such a force of mobilization, both pro and anti? Why does it get people so excited?
1: It's low-hanging fruit. It's easy.
0: It's really, really easy.
1: And... You know, it's one target. All you have to, I just saw a video today that the Center for Science and the Public Interest has done where they sent a, set up a stand on some street corner and they had gl- 12 ounce glasses of water and they invited people to come and put 10 packets of sugar in it. That's what sodas have, that's what they have. Um, so that's an educational effort and it's, it's an easy target. That's a lot of sugar, it's a lot. And there's now so much evidence that links drinking, people who habitually drink sodas to uh, problems with bad diets, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and so forth. There's so much evidence that people who stop drinking sodas lose weight. Um, I mean, I just can't tell you how many people have told me that that's what they did and it worked. That's anecdotal evidence, but, you know, there's, there's systematic evidence as well. Um, and everybody understands it, and it's an easy thing to do. You know, except for people who feel that they're addicted to sulfas, Uh most people can stop, especially when you start thinking about how much
0: sugar there is in them. It's a lot. And on that cheerful note... Great, right, great. That optimistic <laughs> note. Well, thanks, everyone, so much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.